0: Welcome to another edition of Talking Football, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week, you know, we're just as shocked as you are at how the race to beat the drop turned out. It was a wild one day swing that we'll be zooming in on post haste here on the show. Uh, with me this week to cap off the season with a look at match day 34 is a guest that you know and love just like I do, Marie schulte welcome back
1: thanks matt really glad to be back um and what a match day it was i think this is one of those ones where you know the simulcast thing which was always a huge deal in germany when when people were younger everyone remembers that who grew up in germany listening to all the matches on the radio simultaneously and then you switch you switch from stadium to stadium and have different commentators and this was like that you know you had a goal in one stadium and you had so many goals and such great storylines so it was a really great last match day i thought
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was a particularly in in a, a, you know, sort of midway through the first half, there was like a real torrent of goals happening in, in consequential places. And, it's a lot of fun. We will be discussing all that fun down at the bottom of the table. We'll be discussing a little bit about the European places and, and where everybody stands. And of course, while we've got Marie on the pod, you know that we aren't going to pass up the opportunity to talk about what might be actually the juiciest story in all of the Bundesliga, which is the absolute dumpster fire, which is Schalke fear right now. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but I think you recognize what that is. Uh, all that and a special look at Zweite Bundesliga. Champs, Armenia Bielefeld, coming up. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was, of course, the final match day of the season, match day 34. And, you know, once again, the best action of the match day, as far as I'm concerned, was among the worst teams. Saturday, I mean, we kind of, you know, let the cat out of the bag early, and you all know it. It was one of the more dramatic final day relegation scraps in the past few years. Werder Bremen completed at least part one of a uh, great escape. They leapfrogged Fortuna Düsseldorf to go into sixteenth place and uh, snatch that relegation playoff spot for themselves. How did Werder do it? Well, they absolutely first that they, they spanked Cologne six one. And they also got help from Union Berlin, who put three unanswered past Dusseldorf. You know, Vedder really got the lion's share of the work done in the first half hour as Yuya Osako, Mila Rashica, and Nicholas Fulkrug all scored between the 22nd and 29th minutes of that game. Interestingly, that's the first choice attack that, that Bremen had hoped to go into this season with, but who had never gotten much of a run out together due to injury. Until now, I mean, this was a really great time for an offensive explosion, Marie. And and in a way, it was also kind of a what might have been story for Bremen. I mean, this this looked like the Bremen that people ahead of the season were thinking were, you know, a candidate to be an outside, you know, shot for Europe.
1: Yeah, I agree. I was one of those people who actually prophesied that at the beginning of the season not just because of their attacking talent, of which there is so much, you know, Osako. Then, of course, you've got um, Josh Sargent, who's very promising. Uh, Maximilian Eggestein, who I thought before this season had similar talent and a similar playing style of someone like Leon Goretzka, you know, as a really strong number eight. And then shit happened, <laughs> as people say, and it turned up as a really bad season. But they've also got a very, very strong coach. And I'm actually... It makes Werder Bremen even more likable in my eyes that they trusted him this whole season and then were able to succeed with him. Um, of course, it's not done yet. They still have the relegation game to go. But yeah, I mean, it's when you look at the quality of the squad, I agree with you. This is, this is one of those stories of like what could have been. And um, it looks like they've kind of gotten away with a black eye now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that, you know, they, they waited a really long time to sort of uh, take the wraps. Off of their their firepower in this season, and especially their firepower at home. I mean, this was what their their second win at home the entire season. I mean, this is just a, a really bizarre constellation of results uh, for a team that looked dead and buried for a really long time, and happened to catch fire on the last day, and also happened to catch another team napping. I mean, Düsseldorf, this was this was crazy. I mean just prior to Werder's second goal uh, in their game across Germany. You know, ironically, the former Bremen man, uh, Anthony Uja, put Union Berlin in front of Dusseldorf. And, and of course, Christian Gentner and Suleiman Abdelahi put on two more goals before that thing was up. I mean, the weird thing about this, though, was Dusseldorf all season had been a really tough out, Uh, had been a tough out for really – you know good teams in the bundesliga they played a lot of tight games with good teams they played a lot of tight games with bad teams and and their basic you know shortcoming was letting in late goals they basically turned a lot of draws into losses and wins into draws through letting in late goals in the second half of the season especially and this seemed like such a strange time for them to just you know lose and lose big it was it was a weird capitulation from fortuna
1: Agreed. They really faltered. And it was a surprise, I think, for everyone because really before this match day, I would have said there's like a five to 10% chance of Werder Bremen coming out on top. And then look what happened. And of course, you saw on social media, all these jokes between the players saying we're going to send a lot of beer from Bremen to Union to the players there. And of course, Felix Groß, uh, Tony Kors' brother got involved because he's always quite a funny guy. And, um, yeah, so the brothers both adore Bremen. I think that's kind of like a um, an unkept secret in German football. And of course, Felix Groß is at And So I thought that was quite entertaining. But it, it's a shame about Fortuna as well, because it's also a very traditional, historic club in German football. They've got a great fan culture. And actually, my parents lived in Dusseldorf for a few years. And that was when Dusseldorf went up for the first time in a while, a few years ago. I think like six or seven years ago, they went up to the first Bundesliga and it's a really cool footballing city. They've got a beautiful stadium and in the old city center they've got this really long street just full of bars and cafes and on match days everyone is there to watch the games. So I also feel a little sad for Fortuna.
0: Yeah, I do too. I mean it, it was it was it was a really unfortunate choice uh, I think for for people who sort of appreciate, you know, traditionsvereine who who appreciate, you know, really active engaged Sort of, you know, fan culture that has roots in a community and sort of has a certain uniqueness to it. Dusseldorf and Bremen are two clubs that really were a a huge enrichment, a huge, like, uh, you know, positive factor for the league. And it was sad to see that one of them had to go. But if you really, really press me, I'm glad it was Bremen. that's that could be sticking around
1: (laughs) yeah so am i (laughs) i think that's all of germany like that are not Düsseldorf or blamen fan had like a collective when it happened (laughs) kind of like just relief you know yeah i mean it was it was fun it was a good hollywood plot there on the weekend
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Some interesting sort of, uh, I don't know, subtweeting slash, I don't know, uh, uh, backbiting going on implicitly. Uh, Former Dusseldorf coach Friedhelm Funkel has already stepped into the fray, giving an interview to a local press outlet saying he could see himself returning to Fortuna also said that he you know he he can't guarantee that he would have kept them in the league but that quote there would have been great hope of them staying in i thought this was Kind of, I mean, I know that he enjoys a really, really high standing among Dusseldorf supporters for all the, you know, good results they got under him. And the fact that he's a local guy means that he sort of views this as, you know, as Germans call it, a Herzensangelegenheit. like it's it's something that he does, you know, out of out of a sense of, of duty and, and it's, it's a club of his heart. But like, you know, he got fired in 17th place. Yeah. The club finished in 17th place. I thought this was a little bit classless.
1: Yeah, he's he's an interesting character for sure because he did great um, stuff at Fortuna, especially last season, and he kind of became known as this like, you know, kind grandpa who does a lot by motivating his players, kind of like similar, not to be disrespectful, but similar to what Jurpankus did um, at Bayern Munich. You know, like all the players would speak very highly of him, and he did a lot with a not very talented squad. Uh, but yeah, he left for a reason. And I think when he left, it was necessary for him to leave. And then afterwards, he had... I mean, this was not the first time that he publicly said something without anyone really like needing to hear it. So he, he criticized Dortmund uh, publicly and Schalke as well early on the season. He also, when Benito Rahman went from Düsseldorf to Schalke, was like saying that he doesn't think Rahman will succeed at Schalke. And I thought that was a bit tasteless to say that about a former player. And, yeah, I think he's one of those characters that, yeah, you have many of them. in, of course, in European football, that just has a little bit of a too high opinion of themselves, a bit of an ego problem. But, of course, um, like you said, a very highly respected coach for a reason. And maybe we'll see him again, but I don't think uh, that Fortuna is going to bring him back
0: just yet. Yeah, I can see that that would be, I mean, already there was a sort of a power struggle going on at that club. I mean, especially when Lutz van Stiel, the former sporting director at Düsseldorfer, was there, who sort of attempted to fire Friedhelm Funkel and faced such a groundswell of, of negative opinion that he ended up going back on on that uh, move, then eventually firing him in the midway through this season, bringing in uh, Uwe Rösler. It seems to me if you bring back Friedhelm Funkel, then you are basically in bed with Friedhelm Funkel for the foreseeable future, uh, come hell or high water. I mean, that may well work out. I mean, if if you brought him back and he succeeded, that would be, you know, something that would make a lot of fans happy and would make a lot of, uh, you know, people around the club happy. But it's he would be someone who would be almost impossible to get rid of in the future if you brought him back. I mean, quickly, there is some truth to what Friedhelm Funkel said, which is to say this club did not, Improve appreciably in any sense uh, through through the period of, of Uwe uh tenure. You can you can argue that they improved um, in, in the attractiveness of their play. I think that they probably did, but the results really weren't there, or at least when it counted. Did it make sense for them to sort of uh, move on from Funkel? Did it make sense for them to try and go for something different in this club, or is this, you know? the idea that this is just a club that needs to sort of remember its its size, remember its its small ambitions and just sort of, you know, keep its head down. That's the way forward.
1: Well, I think that that's the clash of cultures that you said at the end right there, that you have someone like Lutz van Stiel, who's pretty much a globetrotter and a very creative guy. And clearly, I mean, he's leaving the club as well. Um, so there was something that went wrong there. Um, so he wanted to make the club kind of international and globalized and, similar to what Hertha has been trying to do for the last five years. I think, you know, we're, we're just making it more like an American brand and uh, trying new new approaches in football. And then you have this traditionalist who is successful with traditional methods like Friedheim Funke, and then also a very powerful board at Düsseldorf who pretty much almost bullied out Funke and then didn't, <laughs> uh, which is the story you mentioned. But I think before the season... It's always funny to look back now on the saison and so when experts predicted the season. And like I said, I got some things really wrong. Like I basically said Bremen had a good chance of coming in sixth. But before the season, I said Paderborn and Dusseldorf are going down, like without a question, because they've got the, the weakest squads. And I think no one can really... I mean, they just met expectations. They didn't exceed and didn't underperform. Um, but I think they came in where they were supposed to come in, sporting-wise.
0: All right, let's let's turn our attention back to Bremen for a moment. We've we've mentioned it on a couple of occasions. They are not home and dry. They're they're looking at a date with third place uh, Heidenheim from the uh, Zweite Liga in in the uh, relegation playoff. That's going to be on uh, Thursday and Monday. We discussed this last week on the show that uh, the record of uh, Zweite Bundesliga sides in the relegation playoff uh, is not good. Uh, I think they've they've won three of eleven relegation playoffs since since the uh, the whole concept was resurrected eleven years ago. What are your thoughts about Bremen going into this game? I mean, we know that Bremen got a big thundering win to save themselves on the last match day of the Asta Bundesliga. We also know that Heidenheim uh, got spanked by Armenia Bielefeld mm-hmm. on the match day thirty four of the Zweite Liga. Should we read into that that? Bremen have, have the wind at their backs. They have their first choice attack. Um, Heidenheim are going to be you know, swept aside, or is there something more complex afoot here?
1: I think definitely something more complex. I think this is very much like a cup tie because there's so much at stake, and it's one of those things where, yeah, if you score two goals within five minutes, it will change everything dynamic-wise. I, I do wonder how much of an impact the lack of fans will have because usually... In these type of big games, atmosphere really plays a huge role. But Heidenheim, I think everyone associates Heidenheim with that cup game last season against Bayern Munich, where they really gave Bayern a run for their money. And it was, I think, nine goals fell and Heidenheim was very unlucky to lose narrowly. Um, So they are capable of surprises and they have an attacking playing style, which is interesting. But yeah, on paper, Werder Bremen needs to win this. They've got the experience. And I also think a lot of those players will be looking to leave Verda. And I mean, especially someone like Rashita, who in my opinion could play pretty much for any European team. He's just that good. Um, and those players, uh, also Claudio Pizarro is, well, we don't really know with him, <laughs> but he's supposed to retire. And I think um, they have... More quality, at least um, in terms of the the strength of their squad. Yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. I think you're never putting putting your money on the wrong side of uh, <laughs> wrong side of the ledger when you are thinking that the top flight side is going to have the the better of things in the relegation playoff. But you're right; um, these games tend to be cup ties, not only in the sense that they are, you know, a, a little bit volatile in terms of results, but also there's a very strange atmosphere that surround them I, I I think with the fans we've seen it time and again that there can be a, a pronounced tension in the stadium and I think even without the fans these these players who have sort of gone through what has been a super unusual season and have gotten themselves into this situation either through their merit or demerit you know it's it's gonna be super compelling uh, to watch to watch these games I think before we you know, sort of wrap up this topic. Uh, any thoughts quickly on you know the the fact that Heidenheim is in this game? I mean, you know, highest foul. <laughs> they did a highest foul again. You know, after having lost to Heidenheim in, in in bizarre fashion a couple of weeks ago, they also you know lost to Zandhausen in bizarre fashion. They had gone down two nil early in this game, but then clawed their way back to 2-1 after getting a penalty after about 70, 72 minutes, something like that. And they were pushing for an equalizer. They only needed an equalizer, knowing that Heidenheim were getting spanked by Bielefeld. And then they concede this absolutely stupid penalty. Yasha uh, Wagnermann, it, it, an unbelievably clumsy challenge, uh, trying to, to, to prevent a, a breakaway goal and then after that, three one goes in uh, through through a Zandhausen penalty, concede two more goals in the final ten minutes, just putting a button on a season of absolute idiocy from from Hamburg. I mean, they've outdone themselves this time.
1: Yes, it's. I mean, it's. I think there there was a lot of like laughter at them, especially on social media, and it's hard because. I grew up in Hamburg. I've got really close friends who are Hamburg fans. And this is not a club where you have, like, gentle fans. This is, like, a club where people suffer a lot with the club and they would never leave the club. And HSV, far they just belong in the first league. That's just, like, for me, you know, sometimes people draw up their, like, dream Bundesliga. And Hamburg, is, for me, is, like, in the top five. They just need to be in the Bundesliga, in my opinion, uh, with the history and the heritage and the city. It's a fantastic city, And I just really, it's awful. Like, it's awful how a club can be so mismanaged over many years. And I read a comment today, uh, basically an opinion piece in in Germany with um, T-Online or T, yeah, T-Online. And the journalist there said, when you watch the players, when the haas wins, when Hamburg wins, the players are not happy, they're just relieved. That's their primary emotion is relief because they're just under this constant pressure because they're just like the laughing stock of German football, and, and they're under constant economic pressure. And you know they do have a good squad. They're, the squad is probably after Stuttgart the best squad in the second Bundesliga. But there's just so much pressure on them to perform that it seems like they always falter. And they've tried every type of coach. So I don't think this is a coaching issue. I think Hecking is very experienced, and he, that was actually a good match between the club and and him. And of course, at the beginning of the season, the whole yeah, build story about Bacariata and where he's from and how old and all that bullshit really kind of um, brought the team together and that carried them through a little bit. That was strong. That was really good for the team spirit of this club. But again, they just like completely faltered in the latter half of the season. And I don't know, it just makes me really sad. I think, you know, Heidenheim is adorable, but to me, they belong in the second Bundesliga and Haas far belongs in the first Bundesliga. And I think, having had that Nord Derby and the relegation would have been incredibly exciting. <laughs> so I'm really sad that that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think having the Nord Derby for all the marbles, as it were, um, would have just put so many more eyes, both in Germany and, and outside Germany, on, on that game. Because a lot of times... You know, broadcasters don't even know what to do with that game. Like I, I and you know, maybe maybe this is going to be the 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 one million and one uh, complaint about uh, Fox's coverage of the Bundesliga in in the United States. But you know, because it's not a league game, quote unquote, they don't even know what to do with the relegation. Mm-hmm. They, they, there's hardly even like a, a place for it on the uh, the the streaming app. It's might you know will be falling after the the deadline of of killing the app because their their coverage is meant to have run out at the end of June. So it, it's it's this weird orphan game that um, kind of gets shunted aside other than by uh, hardcore fans. And, and if you had the Nord Derby, it would just sort of make a lot more sense to people. I don't know. I think you're right to say that this is not just a coaching issue, um, in that they both tried a sort of young, inspirational coach in Hannes Wolf uh, last season, who sort of was getting his second chance to lead a big club, to something meaningful. I mean, he had, he had done it with Schuttgart, got them into the, the first division and then got fired when, you know, the going got tough there. Didn't quite manage it with Hamburg. And then, you know, they they went 180 degrees in the other direction, which is to go with a, a, a safe pair of hands in, in Dieter Hecking. And he didn't get it done either. I mean, something's wrong with this club. But at the same time... You know, I, I don't know. I, I look now at the decision that Borussia Gladbach made uh, to move on from Dieter Hecking. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the situations are completely different in these two clubs. But the fact that Dieter Hecking couldn't get this done with, as you say, and I agree, you know, one of the best squads in the league, doesn't really reflect very well on him either, does it?
1: I think this is just a club that is is basically cursed. I know that sounds really silly, but... I think honestly, given everything I know about Hamburg and how volatile the club is and how emotional the fans are, and it's it's similar. There are so many parallels to Schalke, honestly, in the sense that the expectations are pretty much this club deserves to be in the top ten of Europe. We have a gorgeous stadium, we have a long history, we're gonna win trophies, and then the reality is just like pathetic. So I think like I think hacking would have was actually a great fit. And I I also I really admire Max Eberl in a way for basically letting him go because that was a very cold thing to do that normally Eberl isn't known for. But I think the, the reason that Gladbach was so successful this season is because Marco Rosa is so good, not because Hacking isn't. Sure. Uh, I mean, Marco Rosa was like the hottest property on the German coaching market last summer, um, the German-speaking coaching market at least similar to like what Salzburg has now. <laughs> um, so basically all these RB clubs have so much coaching talent coming out of them, of course. But I, I think hacking is solid. I, I don't think he's like a top three or top five coach in Germany, but he's decent. And I think there are other reasons why they messed up again. And also Hamburg has so many promising players. Adrian Fein, but who who who's the Bayern Loney he'll probably get a chance at Bayern. He's a very good central midfielder. Then an attack, they've got a lot of talent, uh, good wingers. And it's just, I don't know, I think it's mind-blowing that they have to stay in the second Bundesliga another year.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's mind-blowing. I think it's, as you say, totally inappropriate for a club of that size to be in the Zweite Bundesliga. But, you know, another dose of tough love might still be what this club needs. I mean, it's really hard to call for that kind of um, medicine because this is a club that has not always made sound financial decisions and and there will be consequences of sticking around at the zweite bundesliga of course but at the same time i still don't think that they have a lot of of you know i don't know 1860 or kaiserslautern potential in them which is to say clubs with big history and big success who are now you know on their way toward uh, oblivion i think that this club still has um, enough of a sort of commercial foothold in Hamburg, which, as you say, is a, is a great city. It's a city with a lot of money. It's a city that really cares about Haasfau. I mean, there is still so much support for that club in that city that you know corporations and and you know commercial partners in that city are still going to see investing in in Ha-Sfau or partnering with Haasfau as a value proposition because there are so many people who who love Haasfau. I don't, I just don't see it.
1: Yeah. And I think internationally, no, I, I, I agree. I think internationally, there's the sense that I've heard this many, many times by people who follow German football, a bit that St. Pauli is kind of like the cool historic club in Hamburg, that St. Pauli is the Hamburg club, but that's just not true. Oh yeah. St. Pauli <laughs> is like known for their left, left politics and they have a really cool, for lack of a better word, brand. And they've got, but that's a neighborhood club. And Hamburg, as far as the Hamburg club that the whole city and region supports. And I agree with what you were saying, that they have so much glamour to them. Uh, the city is so attractive. They, they were always able to attract big players just because the city is so nice, honestly. People like Van Nistelrooy and Van der Vaart, when Hamburg as a sporting status was similar to perhaps a Leverkusen or Gladbach now of like Europa League or Champions League upper half of the league table and even then they could attract that kind of talent because because it's such a big club so yeah I think they've got good people now in charge and um, they're building up Marcel Jansen a lot who knows the club The Jonas Bolt is someone I would have actually really liked to have seen at Schalke uh, but he didn't want to lo- work along with um, Christian Heidel back when that guy was around <laughs> um, so they've got some good people and I don't know. I think it's it's a mystery to me. <laughs> I'm really struggling to find, like, to pinpoint one reason why it didn't work this season.
0: Yep, yep. I I, I think we could probably have a whole other podcast about that. Okay, so we have been dipping into, you know, Bundesliga topics here for some time. We might as well make clear what... Uh, went on down there Heidenheim of course they are in the promotion playoff spot they're going to face Werder Bremen in in the uh, relegation promotion playoff as to FC Nuremberg of all clubs uh, they are in the relegation playoff spot uh, you know between the second and third leagues we don't yet know which dritte liga side that they're going to play because their season is not yet done uh Van Wiesbaden and Dynamo Dresden are down They're going down to the third uh, league, which leaves us with the tops, uh, Falafi Stuttgart, familiar faces to any of uh, a top-flight Bundesliga fan. They came second. They will be back, led by their jersey boy coach, Matarazzo Pellegrino. And uh, the champs are DSA Armenia Bielefeld, who were well worth their title this season. As fate would have it, one of the hosts of the Zweite Bundesliga podcast, Eva Lotabola, is an Armenia fan. I called her up to get the inside word on them. I started off by asking her how recent days have been, knowing that her team was going back up after 11 years outside the Esteliga.
2: Well, both excited and also the feeling of being sad not to be able to celebrate with a team because uh, actually this is the first promotion for me to the Bundesliga that I really, yeah, kind of, get into as a fan not only as a child and that's that's really amazing um but also it's just feels weird because the fans should be there and uh because of the virus of course and it's totally understandable that it's not happening uh like the big uh party at the art house here in bielefeld um still feels
0: very weird yeah i mean it's interesting to me the, the sort of subdued atmosphere that goes along with, with the circumstances we're all living in. But it's also, you know, I, I have to think about this club as one who, I guess, kind of went into this season not really expecting all that much out of it. I mean, you, you've had a couple of good years behind you, but not ones where you were favorites to go up. And this really should have been an especially enthusiastic party.
2: Yeah, definitely. I remember um, our team captain, Fabian closing at the beginning of the season. I can't really... So, uh, quoting him, he basically said, um, I can't really stand before you and say the only thing we want out of the next season uh, is to stay in the league um, because we know our quality, um, but we don't expect us to be first uh, of the league for... the total of the season and if you look at the table we have been top of the league since the match day 15 and if you look at the other clubs in in this league which is a stuttgart hamburg uh hamburg sv sfc nürnberg canova 96 like really really big clubs with really really big ambitions it's huge and if you look that there's a 10 points gap between armenia and VfB stuttgart who is like tons of money more has a mario gomez and a lot of really really good players i think it's amazing what this team has accomplished and um they they should have deserved like a really really big party
0: yeah for sure for sure i mean you, you said it yourself this is a team who has been on top of the league since you know november or whenever that was and it's, it's at a 10 point gap at the top this is a team who has bossed the Zweite Liga this year. Um, what do you see as the source of their of their strength?
2: Well, I think the source really lies in the way Uwe Neuhaus builds up the team. Um, the players set it themselves. Um, everybody knows their role in the team on the pitch and you can really see it. Um, and I think what is really big is the defending stability or the whole stability that goes from the back to, to the front. Um, We have the best defense in the league. Um, I think like 32 conceded goals, which is not a lot. Um, If you, if you once again, look at all the teams that play in this league. And I think this is one key element, but as well as, of course, there is a Fabian Claus who has uh, 21 goals this season. And, um Andreas Fukuzama, but there are a lot of people around them because close scored I think like a quarter of of the total goals that they scored this season, and this is what the team is really about that everyone plays a huge role um if it's um Sibir Zuku that came in after Andreas Fukuzama's injury against our in January um or uh Jonathan Cas Hadley is leaving. As for uh, long in France, but it's there are just a lot of different people that are really key players and are key elements to to this, yeah, to this whole season.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was looking through some of your your, your squad statistics ahead of talking to you, and you know, after having not watched very much Zweite Liga this year, just looking at the numbers, I mean, you mentioned Fabian Close in his twenty-one goals, um, you got. Vogelzahmer with 12 goals. And you have, you guys have five other players who had at least four goals. I mean, if you have that and the best defense in the league, like you're going up. That's period. You're, that's, that's the best a team can get.
2: Yeah. And it's, and I, yeah, once again, this is really what the team is, is making out of their, the chances they got. Um, I think they showed some really good efficiency throughout this season. I remember the 6-0 against Regensburg at home, where they basically used every chance they got, as well as away in Nuremberg, where they actually went up as top of the league, or as Spitzenreiter, as we say in German, for the first time. Um, and even even the Regensburg game, where there wasn't even a Fabian close on the, on the score sheet, and yeah, it's if I think there hasn't been such a deserved um, promoted team since maybe um Hanover in two thousand one, two thousand two who had seventy-five points and actually ten points clear too. I mean you're being a fed at that stage. So um yeah, if you if you look at the performance of this league and of this season, it's 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 a huge success.
0: Yeah. I wanna zoom in just for a moment on Fabian Close, because I think, you know, as you say, he's he's sort of the heart and soul of this team, not only the top scorer, but sort of the spiritual heart of the team. I mean, he's been with the club for nine seasons. He has scored, you know, 132 goals. But this is going to be his first real sniff of, you know, Asta Liga football. I mean, how happy are you and how happy are the rest of the team, the fans for this guy, just to sort of, get a chance to be on the big stage.
2: I think that's kind of indescribable. <laughs> um, if you just ask fans or over Bielefeld um, who is the person you think does deserve this promotion the most, it's definitely Fabian Claus. Especially in the last years, no matter if he has been playing or not, if he doesn't re- or if he didn't really get along with the, the coach, he always puts himself in into the team in every way, all this energy into the team. And this season is just um, as we say, kind of the cherry on the top. Um because he has he's actually scored the most goals here in the season here, has, has ever scored for Bielefeld and he's thirty two. <laughs> and um yeah, if you if you look at the first year here has been in Bielefeld, which was two thousand eleven. I mean, it was just uh, relegated into the Dritte Liga. He came from VfL Wolfsburg's zweite, so second team. And um, he said in, in a couple of interviews that at this stage he didn't even know if he can get paid because the club was at the very, very low. They were nearly um, down to go down to the Regionalliga. Um, and I remember the horrible relegation after after the Darmstadt playoff game and he at the on the next day he basically stood in front of the cameras and said if we can get a team together that play that will play to be promoted next year I will be a part of that team and if you look at that he he said in an interview just just a couple of days ago this team this promotion is kind of rounding up his whole history at this club. And this is all the things he never dreamed of are happening now. And I think it's something that he really deserved. And he is a really good person, like really good human as well. And um, that's why he definitely deserved to grow up. It's like really, really different now. And, um, this is, this is the hope that a lot of uh, Bielefeld fans have, that this might be the time to really establish something something good with the, um, you know, with the surrounding this club has at the moment.
0: All right, you can catch Eva on the Zweite Liga podcast. You can also hear a lot more of our interview, including a lot more about how the club got to where they were, what's been going on with them over the last 11 years, and some of the... the, the, the real strengths of this team on the Talking Foosball Patreon page, patreon.com slash Talking Foosball. All right, here comes part two of Talking Foosball, the part where we dig into the rest of the match day just gone. Match day 34, as it was. And, you know, we started with the worst, we are going to stay with the worst. And if, you know, Truth be told, we might even be talking about even even worse than the worst in terms of form. Uh, 16 games without a win. That, of course, means uh, Schalke no fear. That, of course, means... Uh, Marie Schulte Buckham's favorite club. There are so much to talk about uh, with, with Schalke. Um, I guess the place to start is what happened most recently, which is to say heading <laughs> into this last game of the season, knowing that they, you know, could could salvage a tiny bit of pride by putting in a good performance, they did absolutely the opposite of that. Uh, it was a 4-0 loss uh, away to S. C. Freiburg. How demoralized is the Schalke fan base uh, heading into the off-season?
1: I think demoralized is where we were at maybe four weeks ago. <laughs> now the fan base has gone from, like, basically self-irony and sadness over to turn the other cheek, just being slapped weekend in, weekend out. And now it's just, like, raw anger. Nice. <laughs> and this, <laughs> I want the
0: rage version.
1: This is the rage version. And this is a club that in one of Germany's most important regions, the Ruhr Valley, like the industrial heartland of days gone by in Germany. Incidentally, also the reason the EU was founded because of the coal and steel union um, made between France and Germany originally, Mm -hmm. just about that area. So this is a very important area of Germany where people are obsessed with football. All of the biggest clubs um, besides Bayern Munich come from this area and from North Rhine-Westphalia in general. And these people are now galvanizing and basically coming together. And I think everything you need to know is that the protest against years and the current leadership of the club was scheduled for the beginning of the match, which is to say that no Schalke fan wanted to watch this match. <laughs> they would rather protest while the match was happening because they knew that Schalke would be slaughtered again by a club um, far inferior in quality, no offense to Freiburg, but a club that is better-led. And that's exactly what happened. So most Schalke fans I know from that area were at that protest. Um, And then, of course, the whole Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Can you run down the nature of the protest? I mean, it's basically... An attempt was made to to create a ring around the entire Schalke Gelände mm-hmm. with with fans uh, calling for 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 Tunis to to get out of town.
1: Yeah, exactly. This was a socially distanced protest, which is good because you need, of course, fewer people to make a long chain if you can't touch the other people. <laughs> um, so, according to press reports, there were about one thousand two hundred and fifty fans present, including some ex players like uh, Yves Eigenrauch was there. He was one of the Euro fighters that won the. 1997 UEFA Cup with Schalke against Inter Milan and um, what happened is that this was under the banner of Schalke is not a butchery, Tonyas out <laughs> um, because of course the Schalke president, uh, Clemens Tonyas is one of German's, Germany's wealthiest businessmen he um, pretty much runs some of the biggest sausage brands in Germany, um, similar to Oli is actually who has his own um, sausage brand and their close friends but yeah, so there's this story which is actually quite interesting that Clemens Tönius basically uh, promised his brother, his dying brother, Bernd Tönius, I believe is his name, on Bernd Tönius' deathbed to look after Schalke because Schalke was kind of like the the love of Bernd Tönius' life. And that's why Clemens Tönius got involved in the club and um, kind of bullied out Rudi Assauer in the early 2000s. And there's been this feeling... Um, among Schalke fans for a long time, that Schalke only survived because of Tony's money, and this is absolutely not the case. Schalke is, uh, as we talked about before on this podcast, an eingetragener Verein, so it's basically owned by the fans. Um, it doesn't have ma- it doesn't have majority investors. Um, something that Tony is currently also trying to change along with other people at the club. But um, b- basically, when Schalke was had a lot of debt, especially following the construction of the beautiful arena, he wrote off some of that debt um, or vouched for that debt, I think is what it's called in English. Um, but he never pumped money into the club or anything like that. And for the longest time, fans kind of accepted him begrudgingly because they thought he was like the sugar daddy for the club. Like Kuna is at HSV or Martin Kind is at Hannover. But it's not the case. And then Schalke is a very, yeah, social, I don't want to say socialist because in America that means something else, but it's a social democratic club in nature. It was It's a mining club uh, in a very poor area. It's the poorest area of, of Western Germany, Gelsenkirchen, the town where Schalke is based. And uh, it's also a very strong immigrant community and also Schalke's famous academy, the Knappenschmiede, which is pretty much miners' forge in English. is one of the best academies in German football and has been for the last 20 years. And when Clemens Turniers made those racist comments about African people in a public speech uh, at the beginning, uh, pretty much last summer, there was just like this outcry um, among the fan base and then a lot of shame that he wasn't let go due to those comments. And now it's kind of like with, with the sporting streak and the fact that he wants to change the, the setup of the club, And there's just so much coming together that I think the fans are finally realizing that they want to um, get rid of him, basically.
0: Yeah, you've covered a lot of ground there, Marie. But um, I'm afraid there's actually even more ground to cover. But I think we should sort of pause and and zoom in on what is to be done about Clemens Tönnies here. Mm -hmm. Not only has he created a lot of uh, enemies within the fan base with uh, what he did uh, prior to the season with his his racist comments about Africans, which, you know, not only he, the making of those comments, but the way in which he was quote unquote punished for them, which is to say, he's the chairman of the club. The people on the board of the club are largely his allies or are people brought in uh, on his impetus. They – you know, quote unquote, sentenced him to a three-month suspension, which I think was actually something that he came up with himself. And they were like, "Yeah, that sounds great, Clemens." Um, <laughs> it's it's a bit of a kangaroo court, the the governance of Schalke, because Tonya's has been in power for so long, he's been able to sort of install um, friends and uh, you know lackeys into a lot of critical roles, but. More recently, Clemens Tönnies has, has created headlines, created a, a great deal of shame, not only for the club, but in the wider world in, in, in Germany through some of the behavior of his, his, his business. I mean, the Tönnies meatpacking plant um, near Güttersloh, I think, was basically the biggest, you know, COVID node in all of Germany, it created, you know, an increase in Germany's R number alone because they had more than a thousand uh, COVID cases through through lax uh, safety measures and, uh, you know, overcrowding in the factory, in housing for these, um, you know, poorly paid workers. I mean, having Clemens Tönnies as the face of this club, as he has basically been for the past 20 years, is becoming increasingly untenable in a public sense, but when you look at the way he sort of lodged himself into the, the the heart of the club, how are you going to get him out?
1: Well, I think, so his current tenure um, as president runs until 2022. And the issue is that I think the Schalke fans or the resistance, I think that's the stupid word, but there there is no such thing yet to speak of. At the moment, people are saying he has to go but there's no way forward, and that scares people. That scares a lot of the more more of the establishment, um, a lot of the fans who perhaps aren't so young. They can't really envision what comes after. They perhaps also know that Schalke isn't always where it stood. Schalke also spent some time in the second Bundesliga and some time as more a minor club. So it's kind of like people are grabbing onto what there is and think that with him everything will go away. And that's because there is no strong figure yet who will run against him. And Schalke is a club that always is obsessed with the strong man. You know, they, there's this folklore around Rudi Assauer. And I think most clubs are like this, to be honest. I think football is not democratic at all. Bayern Munich was obsessed with strong men as well. And that's why Hassan Salihamidz gets derided so much because he isn't that. He's a good guy, uh, but he's not never going to be that you know, um, patriarch as, as someone like Hunas was or even Rummeniger is in parts. And I think there is no candidate yet, at least no one who stepped out and said, look, I'm going to take on Tönnies. And therefore, it's it just seems like the moment, like there is really no alternative, but I, I'm hoping that will change.
0: All right. Well, that seems to me to be at the heart of the problems with Schalke uh, uh, in, in a broader sense. You, you mentioned the sort of I don't know, uh, uh, intractability of the Tonyas problem, but in a smaller day-to-day sporting sense, um, there might be uh, ways to move forward. There are, you know, sort of two things going on at the moment since the the the, the season has ended in at Schalke. There has been both a um, confirmation that David Wagner. Is going to be sticking with the club. There was some confusion over whether that was going to be the case after a press conference was moved from Monday to Wednesday. Some folks thought that might mean that they were looking at a little time <laughs> to get rid of him, but it seems that's not the case. And also, it looks like, as at least as the the Zeitung would have it, uh, that's a, a newspaper, a national German newspaper out of Munich, that uh, you know still has has very good contacts throughout the Bundesliga, says that Schalke is considering putting in a an informal salary cap for the entire squad, that no player would be paid more than two and a half million euros per season. That would be a pretty radical shift for a club who you know, part of what Schalke sort of, you know, sees itself as, as, as a powerful club in the Bundesliga. It's the kind of club that not only sort of has the power to attract a lot of fans and to attract um, good players, but can go around buying players from other teams and pay big wages and attract players um, through their financial might. And putting in a salary cap would be a signal not only to you know fans that they are, are going into a new era of, of management, but also to players that like Schalke is not somewhere you want to come to get rich. Schalke is a player to to sort of be on your way up in your career. I mean, this seems like a really really radical idea. Mm-hmm.
1: I think yeah, there, there's so much to this. I agree that it can be. You, you need to have it as a draw to bring in talented players, also more, maybe more experienced players who are mid to late twenties rather than you know, those basically this season, Schalke has been kind of like a playground for talents, right? You've got Juan Miranda, Jean-Claire Touribault, the Barcelona who are at least in Touribault's case, very talented, but have also had, um, you know, this is their time and arena to make mistakes. And then, you know, if they eventually develop, they can go back to Barcelona or elsewhere. Um, John Joe Kenny, where that worked extremely well, he's had a great season. And I honestly think he'll get his shot at Everton under Ancelotti. I rate him quite highly. But that's kind of where Schalke is going and I think that's honestly, I support that strategy to be more a developing and selling club uh, because at the end of the day, every club in Europe is a selling club with the exception of like five or eight teams. Even Dortmund is a selling club. So that's the one side of it. It's like, how are you going to attract more experienced players? But the other side of it is, how are you going to reward your own players? So. For example, Suat Siada is currently in um, talks to extend his contract and he's probably one of the top four players Schalke has right now and he seems interested um, and he's actually said publicly a few months ago that he's interested in extending his contract. But you need to give someone like Suat Siada, you know, four or five million at least per season for him to stay on because he could get that somewhere else. And I think this is where I don't really see how it's going to work because, of course, in the current squad, anywhere between five and ten players already make way more than that. And I'm kind of like, well, what about those guys then? <laughs> um, but I, I do think the idea behind it, I don't want to write that off because yeah. I think Schalke for the past 10 years had a bit of an issue of bringing in average players and just way overpaying them. Like I'm thinking guys like Tranquilo Banetta ben- or um, Tupo Moting or even Bastian Okchipka, who is a lovely guy, but he's just a very average Bundesliga player. And they come from teams like Leverkusen or Frankfurt or Wolfsburg or wherever, and then they just make double um, at Schalke and they just really don't need to be paid double. So I think maybe that's kind of the thinking behind it. Um, But I think Jochen Schneider has announced that he will talk about, well, he hasn't announced anything, but I believe this is the reason why the press conference got moved from Monday to Wednesday so that. Schalke can make um, more plans towards that and then perhaps announce something
0: yeah they, they got to put together a nice uh, a nice PowerPoint presentation <laughs> to, to justify all this this crazy talk of of salary caps I mean I agree that this could be a positive step for this club or at least sort of um, it, it could be them sending a signal that they want to stop that practice of you know paying average players uh, above average wages. But at the same time, there are huge problems with with how you implement that. Especially when you look at the fact that the the, the clubs that they're trying to compete with, the clubs that where the clubs who are where they want to be, which is you know let's just say like Dortmund, Bayern, etc., are just paying so much more than that. And if you want to play in that big league, which the fans of Schalke want that and the management of Schalke want that, they probably need to build toward that a little bit more slowly. But that's a really big jump to go from paying players, you know, just two and a half million to having a squad of players. You're paying, you know, two or three times that. I mean, look at um, Borussia Dortmund in in recent days when they're talking about trying to hold on to Jaden Sancho, um, mm-hmm. who's already on six million a year. Apparently, uh, they're looking at paying him ten million yeah. if they can uh, get him to play another season or two with them. Yeah, I mean, that's a completely different um, world yeah. than, than than the world that Schalke and maybe and. Maybe that's just them accepting reality.
1: Well, Schalke also a few... I mean, this was two years ago. Schalke offered Leon Goretzka 12 million euros a year uh, for a four- or five-year contract with a release clause. Um, And I think everyone would have thought that was fine because he was our best player. Of course, he had a lot of injury problems. He he wasn't the same player he is now, um, but he was very promising at Schalke already, and he already had that strong personality. And there are certain... If anything, I think a better way forward for Schalke would be to have that American system of having a salary cap for the whole squad and then rewarding um, success and and talent and leadership and paying other guys a bit less. And, you know, if, if someone like, for example, Stamboli right now, who's kind of like a talisman for the club and a leader... And he would perhaps accept a lower salary for his last contract. And you know what? Even if he doesn't, then that's reason enough for him to go for both sides. So I think that would be a better way forward than this very radical move of just saying 2.5 to everyone. Um, where really, I mean, some players just should be earning more. I think we can all agree on that. But actually, one more uh, one more point I just wanted to make. Um, RB Leipzig, until one or two seasons ago, had a salary cap as well for individual players of 3.5 million euros. And they also had a policy of only signing players uh, younger than 23 years old. And it worked very well for them. And they had enough um, good arguments to still attract good players. And it worked. I mean, look at them now. Um, Of course, they eventually shattered that um, to reward guys like Timo Werner, um Yusuf Powersen and Emil Forsberg. Like there are now players that earn more than that at Leipzig, but um, maybe that's something. Also looking at Jochen Schneider's history.
0: I was about to say who who was the sporting director there uh, a little <laughs> while ago.
1: <laughs> right, I think I think this might be where the idea comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I think Jochen Schneider. If I can c- climb into his head for a moment, which you know he probably won't mind, I think. His his experience working at, at clubs which really are a lot better run than Schalke, um, he's probably wanted to implement something along these lines for a long time um, and, and sort of bring a sense of, of order, bring a sense of guidelines to a club which has, you know, you got to admit, has lived without <laughs> a sense of guidelines or, or guardrails for a long time and, and probably needs to to learn um I don't know, how to structure itself for a few years before it can start competing in earnest for, for, you know, titles, European places, et cetera. Right. All right, let's talk a little bit about the European places. Those are all, you know, done and dusted. The, 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 The season is over. Bayern are champs, of course. Dortmund, second place, 69 points. Leipzig, third place, 66 points. Gladbach, 65 points. You know, Dortmund... Basically took the day off on match day, uh, 34 that allowed Hoffenheim to, uh, trade places with Wolfsburg. They went into sixth, Wolfsburg in seventh. Leverkusen are the team on the outside looking in for the champions. Like, uh, you know, uh, other than of course they, they managed to win the Europa League. Any thoughts about how things, uh, shook out here at the end of the season? Um, I pretty much think this is, this is a really good re- reflection of, of how the season went. I think, you know, Gladbach and Leverkusen, I think you can make an argument that both of those teams have the quality to, to participate in the Champions League. I, but I, I'm looking at next, next season's European competitions and thinking that, that Germany is actually going to be sending out a, a really strong group of teams who have both the sort of management acumen and financial might to, to actually do some damage.
1: I agree and I'm actually very happy um, for Hoffenheim because they are so fun to watch um, but very inconsistent but on, especially on this match day again you sh- you could see how much talent they have and the fact that players like um, Kader Kadajabek or Kramaric are still there um, when they could easily be playing for like a top team in the Italian league for example or perhaps even a team like Atletico Madrid uh, speaks volumes and they've got so much talent in their squad. Like Samaseku is very interesting. Dennis uh, Geiger is a player I really liked pretty much since he came on onto the Bundesliga, I think two or three years ago. But he's had some injury problems, but he's someone who I, I can imagine playing for the German national team in the future. And um, yeah, they're just a really fun team. And I think they could really be one of the surprising clubs next in the next Bundesliga season if they're well coached. Um, of course, there was some yeah unsettlement there with the player the Alfred Schröder now leaving the guy who came from Ajax um, so there's there's some kind of turmoil in the background there about expectation management but I actually think they this is a club that has a lot going for it in terms of the quality of their squad also Sko is getting a lot better that Danish striker they brought in and then inexplicably converted to a fullback mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he's 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 been um, showing his attacking talent a lot more um, since the winter break. And uh, yeah, I think Ladbach and Leverkusen have similar quality. Um, and in a way, it's a shame that we won't see players like uh, Moussa Diabi in the Champions League. Um, but I agree with you that this just that the clubs that did qualify for Europe, um, whether that be Champions League or Europa League will really um, be good representatives for the Bundesliga next year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we sort of touched on this uh, a little bit last week. It is unfortunate that all three of the Europa League uh, participants, or I guess, you know, two plus Wolfsburg who have to work their way through some, some qualification rounds, are what you might call in German parlance, plastic clubs, clubs which are, you know, either, uh, supported by, uh, you know, uh, huge corporations or by, uh, a, a, you know, a company man like, uh, Deep, Deep so that's not exactly going to <laughs> make television broadcasters happy, but <laughs> these are all clubs who, who, you know, both provide a good deal of, of entertainment for neutral fans who actually do tune in and also have the money to, to buy some some further good players now that they have you know european competition locked in
1: yeah yeah it's I, I agree with you it's a shame that we don't have the likes of like eintracht frankfurt or dare i say schalke <laughs> or even freiburg um, that would have been fun to see those types of clubs with their environments and their fan cultures in europe um, but in terms of the quality of the football um, all of those teams that did qualify deserve to be where they are
0: yeah. A couple of notes about those results, as well as uh, things coming out of, of uh, you know, Dortmund. There was a little bit of uh, back and forth between uh, between Dortmund and Wolfsburg uh, uh, on Sunday, I guess, or on Saturday night. After, uh, you know, Dortmund rolled over to Hoffenheim, there was some comments from from Wolfsburg, uh, the Wolfsburg camp that, you know, Dortmund hadn't done them any favors on Joachim Watzke, the, you know, Dortmund chairman snapped back, the, you know, We might have lost 4-0 on the day, but if you guys lost 4-0 as well, you should shut your mouth. (laughs) But there was an interesting little bit of, I don't know, maybe um, uh, veiled discord in the Dortmund camp, which is to say some comments from Roman Bürki, the goalkeeper for Dortmund, who – Opened what might be described as something of a Pandora's box for Dortmund. The 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 mentality question, the question that uh, you know gave Marco Royce the opportunity to curse in front of, um, you know, television cameras earlier in the season about you know this is this this bullshit about mentality. That's not our problem. And then you know, Berkey went around and said, you know. We're different than Bayern. We don't have that winner mentality. Um, and that winner mentality is something that you know observers on the outside often pin on this club as being missing, but you don't often hear it from people in the club. You now hear it from the goalkeeper. I don't know if that means that there is a little bit of disagreement within the squad about whether this is a real thing or not. Or maybe Roman Berkey was just trying to feed reporters what he, <laughs> he thought they wanted to hear. I, I just thought it was pretty interesting that that this issue, which many people have gone out of their way to dismiss as a fake issue,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is now maybe a real issue.
1: It's tough. I think any, any player at the age of like 16, 17, 18, who gets close to a professional contract has so much mentality and so much grit and has had to give up so much, whether that be – Going out with friends, sometimes schooling, um, you know they, their future, their professional future, essentially their free time. You always hear these things that teen, that teenagers just grow up extremely isolated and therefore extremely close to their parents. And I don't think uh, you could just say, okay, this team has a bad mentality, because I think most players that earn their money in the first Bundesliga have exceptional mentality. Um, I do think you have kind of anomalies posit- in the positive sense. Players that, you know, I hate this term, but Jurgen Klopp calls them mentality monsters. You certainly have that. People who, just based on character and hard work and the way they read a game or their structure, um, do exceptionally well. I'm thinking of someone like Benedict Huvedis, for example, who um, in the Schalke Academy almost didn't make the cut until people realized how intelligent he is as a player. But in terms of his technical skill, he really was very average in Schalke's under eighteen team, and then of course became a starting uh, defender in Germany's World Cup winning team. Um, so that's 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 like definitely an exception. Also, guys like Bastian Schweinsteiger, you always have those players that can really lift up a team. But I don't think you can demand that every player should do that, and that every player can do that, and. You know, people always point their fingers at Jaden Sancho, which I think is just ridiculous because I don't think, you know, buying expensive clothes or going on holidays off the pitch makes him a worse player on the pitch. He's been their best player for two seasons running now. And um, I think in the case of Dortmund, it might be more an intergenerational issue where the older players um, perhaps conduct themselves differently because they're 10 years older than the younger players who do so well because of individualistic flair and skill but both of these camps of players do a lot for the team and I don't think that Dortmund didn't win for mentality reasons I think it's honestly because Bayern Munich is just the more deserving champion and we're just so great this season Um, and any season as we know (laughs) Um, that that's kind of the reason in my opinion
0: Yep. Yeah. I, I would agree. I, I I do not buy into the idea that um Dortmund, you know, blew it either last season or this season. I think that Bayern basically just had enough in reserve, both in terms of talent and uh in this case, in this season, a transformative coaching change that they just got the job done nonetheless. They're just better. A quick note also about Dortmund, but before we wrap this uh, episode up, and this is just coming out because of the nature of, of Dortmund as a club with their being you know publicly traded. They have some, some financial data about them coming out, which kind of illustrates the impact of, of the COVID question this season in the Bundesliga. They have said that they lost 45 million euros uh, over over the course of of the uh, the year, which you know for a club their size is is not a, a crippling sum, but ain't nothing. This is uh, this is a pretty uh, alarming number.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually depressing because you know Dortmund, in many people's eyes in Germany, is one of the best run German clubs, perhaps even European clubs, and they've had an excellent season. Um, they have. So much value in the bank in terms of the players they have that they can sell, if they need to, and they've got an incredible stadium. All of this, you know, you could I could talk ages about what makes Dortmund a great club. And if they, as Germany's second largest club, are in trouble after you know two or three months of coronavirus lockdown, it just shows why oligarchs and investors and shady people. Um, have such an easy um, ride in European football because they just, you know, they waive a few dollar bills and uh, here you go, you can buy a club. And it's because there's always this need. And I, I think it's incredible for anyone that works like in the private or public sector, in another industry, like just how poorly run or how volatile, is perhaps a better um, conclusion there, how volatile this ecosystem is given the amount of money that's in it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's odd. It really surprised me to hear these news today because I thought that they would have other good sources of income, such as merchandising. Dortmund also does a lot in, in Asia and in America, um, TV rights, of course. Basically, I thought that they would be fine, but 45 million is, is a lot of money.
0: All right. That is all for this edition of Talking Football, which was produced as always by Aidan Rantoul. Really good to have you back on the pod, Marie.
1: Yeah, I loved it. And uh, just as a last note, if any of your very educated and kind listeners want to ever run as Schalke president against 10 years, reach out to me and I'll um, be happy to do your marketing campaign for you.
0: <laughs> excellent. Excellent. We've got a, a, an actual professional uh, marketer and uh, Schalke fan here. So don't pass up this opportunity. If you want to contact uh Marie on Twitter. You, of course, can do that uh, at Marie Schubo. You can probably get into a big discussion about Schalke. I know there's lots of discussions to be had. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can find us at uh, Talking Football. Uh, please do subscribe to the pod. Please do review us, uh, you know, positively if you think positive thoughts about us. Uh, tell your friends who like German football to give us a try, and we will be back soon with uh, some, some season in review content as well as some more pods from time to time through the summer to keep you tired. It'll work. Bis zum nächsten